Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, uh, this is a Tuesday, so I'm here with our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm good. How was your, how was your weekend? Did you watch football? Uh, I did. I watched more football than I've watched, I don't know, in like... In years. I, I watched every game yesterday, all three games. Who's your team? Do you care? Uh, you know, just the Bills for kind of like both the New York State thing and also just sort of rooting for Buffalo, you know? Yeah, no, and they have a, they look great. I, I mean, the best. I mean, it's it's funny. Like, they obviously had the superior team to the Patriots, but you kind of imagined that, like, somehow the Patriots yeah, were going to, like, figure it out and they didn't. work it was some black great. magic. Yeah. I was psyched. Um, did you bet? You can you can now legally bet on sports in the state of New York. I did. I did. I bet on I, – so I, I – I have friends who are like like shopping around and telling saying which apps are better and which but I just went to Caesar because I like the bonus money that they and I didn't do I guess you can get up to three thousand dollars and I was like, you know, if I put three thousand dollars in there, like that's just not gonna feel good later. Yeah. So I just put two hundred and fifty dollars. But yeah, I, I, I picked all five games correctly. Um, there were four favorites at one, only the um, only the, the San Francisco 49ers were the only underdog. And then everybody, apparently, I heard later that the sharp money was all betting San Francisco, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they say to people who like to think they know what they're talking about exactly, when they don't. Exactly. It's all just various ways to reel in all the suckers. But um, So, yeah, I took some money out this morning, and I, I, it said it would take three days to clear. And I was like, okay. Yeah, so right. I'm like, I wonder. But so you picked Caesars because that was the best deal you found. Yeah, I just and I didn't shop that carefully. I I downloaded the FanDuel app and the um, DraftKings, yeah. and and then I just ended up putting money in Caesar. But it wasn't it wasn't like a super informed decision. I have to say, like I don't like that kind of like reading the fine print of everything, you know. Yeah, but I will say I think what you did, even in a cursory way, is exactly what's happening across the sports betting landscape, which is it, it's a tough business in the sense of. Um, there's very little to differentiate the different platforms, yeah. and you are reliant on an external event, you know, two teams and everything else. And so, as a result, all you can do is try to have better marketing and better deals to get to lure people in. Um, so, as a, you know, so I, th I think it makes it tough. I mean, the real money in that is is in iGaming and, and esports betting. Tell me why iGaming and esports are more promising. Like, what's the because it just there's, to to put a bet. On a sport, even though a sports game obviously is far more exciting to people than any particular poker game or, you know, video game or whatever else, right? A lot of friction has to happen, right? You need teams, you need uniforms, referees, whatever sport you're playing, stuff has to happen, and there's a limited number of them. Even with people betting on stuff all over the world, German soccer and you know Australian rugby and whatever else, it's still limited, right? Whereas online poker, online blackjack, online craps. Two random people playing, you know, Halo or League of Legends or Counter Strike Go, um, it's infinite, right? It is so much more scalable and there's so much more opportunity that, you know, you can just make much, much more money. And what's the best, what's the best like strategy just for differentiating? Because obviously, like, I mean, you just need better tech, better it's, what? You know, like, so look, I'm an investor in FanDuel, right. uh, as you know, I still have a little bit uh, of equity left in it. Um, and it's hard, right? Because the tech's basically not that complicated and it's right. all kind of the same. And so it's, you know, your partnerships with teams, your partnerships with athletes and celebrities, your marketing strategy, what kind of deals you can offer. Can you be the first to market with some new type of new type of sports betting product in some way? You know, cornhole or whatever. Uh, there's big <laughs> money on cornhole these days. Um, so yeah, but it's it's a tough business. I mean, we we did well on our FanDuel investment, and I'm grateful for that. But um, I think a 
I have not made a sports betting only investment since then, and I don't know that I would. And you um, are not. I know you're not a serious gambler, but you're not even interested. No, in dabbling. Well, yeah, because here's the thing. I've got. It just feels like too much of a conflict for me. I've got investments in different gambling companies. Uh, I, you know, I probably need to be licensed in certain states for a casino. Like, it's just cleaner and easier if I don't gamble. You know, it's funny. I was reading, um, rereading Clockers. Um, it's a good book. Uh, it is a good book. And the, the the lead character, main character, Strike, you know, one of his three golden rules is never touch the product. Um, is that is that how it works in the uh, casino business, or is everybody kind of I, a gambler? I don't think Christian gambles. Christian's my partner in Ivory. Uh, I don't think Christian gambles either. Uh, now, Christian is licensed as a casino operator in multiple states, so right. he has, like, some real restrictions placed on him. I'll, I don't have that yet. But um, I don't know. I, I think, like, anything, you know, it loses its luster, right? You know, the right. people who end up liking sports the least, sports writers, <laughs> because they just, like— you know, and that's true in every industry, right? Like the restaurant wanna... critics hate the food. The, yeah, you know. like I don't really want to have to like talk to random people about politics, right? I don't care what your average person thinks because it's just annoying for me, right? <laughs> so, like, it, I think that's true in in pretty much everything. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of things besides football we were going to talk about today. Um, the Mets. W- should we? Um, should we start with Anne Frank? Yeah, yeah. So, so once you give the, or I'll give it. You the, got it. Yeah. The, uh, 60 Minutes did this. Um, I guess it's a preview of a documentary that someone's making in <clears throat> in the Netherlands about uh, Anne Frank's how she got turned in, which has been this long running mystery. Anne Frank's father was the only survivor of the family. He spent a couple of years after World War II ended trying to get to the bottom of it, and then he sort of very abruptly abandoned it, which was very mysterious. Like, did he find something out? What? What? what why did he stop looking for, for who had uh, turned in the, his family? And so this uh, the 60 Minutes piece that aired last night um, sort of revisits the whole thing and this investigation um, into uh, into to who did it, and they they sort of arrive at a, I, I guess a somewhat a persuasive answer. Yeah. 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 Um, once you, once you well, pick so it up What was there. interesting about it is, and I, I didn't watch it, but I read the, the full transcript, um, which is easier to do because it's a lot faster. Oh, you read the transcript? Yeah. Howard sent it around this morning, and I, oh. I read it. Uh, I watched it. Maybe it would have been better to just, read the transcript. Well, I just watching it takes however long it takes, right? I you read a lot faster. You it, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, first of all, I'm not entirely sure why it matters to figure out uh, who turned in Anne Frank's family. You know, maybe it's a big deal in Holland for some reason. I, to me, it's like... You know, they were victims of a genocide, like like six million other people, and it's all horrible, and their death is no worse or better than, than anyone else's. Um, but the, the part that captured me, and now that you mentioned kind of Otto Frank's decision to sort of quickly kind of stop looking at this, it all kind of made make sense, which is um, there was a, a group of Jews in— uh, Holland, and I know this existed in other places too, they were kind of recruited by the Nazis or tasked with trying to keep keep order and all of that. And the where the investigator landed, it was an FBI expert who had done all these cold cases. Sounds like a very impressive group of people. Um, he was less impressive on air, I'll say. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. the reading that he seemed, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but it was... Um, they thought it was the kind of leader of the Amsterdam kind of Jewish council working with the Nazis who turned them in. And so the question that I kind of went to in my head is like, okay, let's say you're this guy, right? And you have your own family. Um, Would you turn in other families uh, to save yourself? Would you turn in other families to save your family, your kids? And I think it's a pretty hard question, right? So I, I don't think 
I don't think I would turn in other people to save myself, uh, maybe solely because, and listeners are probably familiar with this, I'm so fucking tortured already <laughs> that if I then did that, you know, I don't think I'd, be, I don't think I'd last anyway. Um, but if it were my kids, I don't know. And I kind of wonder if Otto Frank found out who it was and understood and just decided, like, okay, I get it. Now, ironically, or not ironically, tragically, th those Jews who were in that council were all sent to the camps and killed as well. Although so, not the not the guy who was— He uh, survived. He survived. He lived—he died in 1950, it said. And one of the—I think one of the serious limitations of the 60 Minutes piece, although I, I assume the documentary that is being produced in Holland goes into it, is really more about this guy and who his family was. And presumably he had survivors. It, it doesn't—it just talks about him dying in 1950. It doesn't mention children. It doesn't mention— um, his wife, it doesn't mention, which is interesting because if, I mean, I think one of the really troubling aspects of it, so there's the, the nature of collaboration and the kind of pressure that was put on people to turn in their, uh, turn in other people, and that was Jews on Jews and non-Jews, and it, I mean, it was, it was obviously across all yeah. boundaries, but, but, yeah. um, but the question is, is like, you know, what the guy did seem to be was to just give lists, so it wasn't just like, oh, it's my family or their family, it's like he's feeding yeah, information, no, he's, possibly dozens, hundreds. Like, right. I, and, I, I think it would be very, very, very hard to live with yourself if you did that. Um, at the same time, if it were literally your kids will, you believe, even though they all, you know, most of them died anyway, if you believe that the life or death of your children is dependent on this, right. and you could say, you know, everyone's going to ultimately get caught anyway, whatever, you can rationalize it however you want. Right. I, I don't. I don't know what I would do. I, I still like to think that I would do the right thing. And I think that to your point, if it's lists and lists of people, so it's a couple of lives versus dozens, it becomes an easier choice. But let's say it's one family versus your family. And that's the trade-off you have to make to stay keep your family alive. Right. Um, what would you do? You know, I don't know. What would you think? You, what would you do? I mean, I can't answer. I mean, I think they. I think the, the way they left it in the documentary was, was or in the 60 Minutes piece was, pretty right on which is you know not to just cast judgment on this one person but to but to but to realize that he was caught in this horrific circumstance and you know think about you know wh who knows what anybody would do faced with something like yeah. that you can't answer until you're there and um so i mean it does it does make you think of the the people in history who've made the other choice and realize why you know the the, the people have sacrificed themselves or their own family and 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 how much um, you know, obviously, how much admiration and and um, they deserve, but yeah, you know, yeah, and there no, were a lot of people like that too. Obviously. It, it was interesting that the piece didn't. Maybe the documentary was just more like that. The, that was the more interesting question: was the moral conundrum of the person who they believe turned them in, as opposed to how they found who it was. Or right, it, it was pretty it was. unsatisfying too. That the the, the sort of the references to AI and all the things. It was like the investigation didn't wasn't interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I didn't watch it. Um, <laughs> Um, all right, uh, we should, so we have so many more topics to discuss, but the one that I see here, it, which I am most interested in, was this um, editorial you sent me from the Wall Street Journal last week, it, and I'll just read the headline. Um, it was, globalization was supposed to prevent war, Russia may be showing the opposite. Um, Bradley, why do you want to talk about this? What was what was interesting to you about that? Yeah, I mean, because there, there's this sort of McDonald's theory that Tom Friedman had put out. Was it McDonald's? Like, it was uh, the Lexus and well, the, the book was the Lexus on the olive tree. Right. This was probably in the like late '90s. Oh, right. His McDonald's. But his theory, McDonald's right, theory right. was no two countries that have a McDonald's have ever gone to war with each other. And point being, 
once you have a real economy and you have things you want to protect, and all of a sudden the cost-benefit analysis of war changes. And well, and the exchange between economies, right? So, yeah. so the, the McDonald's was everybody sharing in the plenty of like fast food burgers and enjoying it and not wanting to disrupt that and be back to, I don't know, eating something besides McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it, interestingly here, because we've been talking about this on the podcast before, and we talked about whether or not the U.S. would come to the military aid of the Ukraine against Russia or Taiwan against China and concluded that because of our own economic interests, we, we certainly would not with Taiwan and probably wouldn't with the Ukraine either. Um, you know, that in a weird way, if you're a kind of authoritarian despot like Putin, um, it actually is, is very encouraging, right? Because you're like, it's not just that I, you might, nor, the, the, the three, Friedman theory was supposed to be individual leader of a country says, I have too much to lose to pursue this war, so we'll come up with some other way to resolve it. Right now, you got Putin's obviously especially clever and smart, but he's saying they have too much to lose. And as a result, they're ultimately not going to defend it. And so it's there for the taking. You yeah. know, you have to be willing to sort of handle all the sanctions, all the international approbation, everything else. But he clearly is willing and able to do that. Um, so in a weird way, I think even though the thought was that. Um, it would provide incentives equally for all kinds of countries, M much in the way that, that nuclear war, the reason why we haven't had one is, so far at least, everyone who has the ability to launch a nuclear missile understands that it would mean mutually assured destruction for everyone, and therefore no one has made that choice. I don't know that that continues in perpetuity. Um, but anyway, that's the, that was the theory behind the, the McDonald's thing, which, you know, then I hadn't thought about this until just now, kind of scares the shit out of me, which is <laughs> maybe someone will think that they have kind of a first mover advantage on a nuclear strike and be more likely to do so. I mean, I'd always thought that if we had a nuclear attack, it would either be a terrorist organization got their hands on it and used it or a really out there dictator like Kim Jong does it. Right. Right. Um, the idea of Russia or China or the U.S. strategically saying because of the way the world now works, we can actually get away with this uh, and use nukes in a limited capacity and believe that people aren't going to fire back. Uh, because, because it would be the destruction of the world. It would be kill themselves. Mm. You know, that's an interesting game theory. It kind of gets to a point that I, I texted you about a few weeks ago, and there was actually another article in one of the papers today about living with climate change. And I mm -hmm. think I, my text to you was, was the entirety of living with climate versus nukes versus COVID. Right, right, right. And, or I think the article today was about living with COVID. And, and, and what I was thinking about this, I'm curious to know what, what you think, which is, so the world has learned to live with the threat of nuclear annihilation, right? I think it was obviously a really big deal during the Cold War and very much on people's minds. But by the time that we were, I kind of remember the, you know, that movie The Day After Tomorrow and kind of, but by the time the Berlin Wall came down, it really hasn't been, a serious concern ever since. I don't. I don't stay up at night worrying about it. Although it is totally feasible that that's how we ultimately all perish, right? Um, so then the question becomes: living with terrible things. So COVID is here, and it will probably be here in some form for a very long time, right? And generally speaking, I think we will learn to just live with it and adapt to it. Do you think we already have? I mean, I, like I think we at have least, at least. I mean, not not as yeah. an entire culture, but certainly in New York City. I mean the. It's been pretty interesting going through the Omicron stuff and how different it was from, you know, March 2020. Um, yeah, yeah. We're, well, look, Lyle's bar mitzvah is in a few weeks. We're doing it, right? right? And maybe 
some people won't come. You know, some maybe we're going to test people. Maybe some people will test negative and they can't come in. But right. like, we're we're moving forward. Um, but but look, even if because was that a hard decision or is it like pretty straightforward? Well, here's the thing. We're doing the ceremony no matter what because this kid learned this incredibly long <laughs> Haftorah portion, right? So, like, and it, it's also he has to live up to his sister because she did a good job. Yeah, yeah she did. It's specific to that week. So, like, you can't be like, oh, we'll do it four weeks later. Um, if somehow it just becomes unfeasible to have the party, we'll, we'll move it to right. some other time. But I, I think we'll move forward with it. So, um, but, the, but look, I, I think it's more that we understand and accept, at least in first world countries where people choose to be vaccinated and boosted. So that varies within the United States to some extent as well. Um, but we, you know, we kind of understand what it takes and we're adapting to it. And by the way, there are probably times where there are going to be variants that are much more dangerous than Omicron that will lead to you know quarantines and things like that. But I think we're learning how to do it. And I guess the real question is climate change, which is should we learn how to live with climate change, right? So I think that kids today live in existential dread of climate change. I remember really early in the pandemic, like I think it was March of 2020, we were already kind of relocated upstate, right. asking my kids, what are you more afraid of, climate change or COVID? And they both said climate change. Right, because they've been thinking about that on some level for a lot of their lives, kind of at least the conscious lives. Right, um, COVID was still a relatively new thing. Um, COVID ultimately has had a much bigger impact on their lives as it has for for all of us. But you know, there's a world where we live with climate change, is the world where we don't. And I guess what I'm hoping is that we don't learn how to live with climate change, right? Because what you're going to have is all of these cataclysmic events, but generally not here, right? Yeah, yes, we have. Tougher tornadoes and hurricanes and stuff like that too, and flooding. But the really cataclysmic stuff, where it's going to wipe out, you know, it's going to be in the third world where people don't have the kind of resources to protect themselves from it, or just where they happen to live. Like if you think about this, it wasn't climate change, but the, the volcanic eruption over the weekend, right. you know, in, in the Pacific. Um, and as a result, I think learning to live with it in the way that we have with nukes, or, or maybe we will with COVID, and have is really dangerous because then all of a sudden we just sort of adapt to it and accept it. Well, it's like the frog in the boiling water, right? I mean, exactly. at some point it will be, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can do that. And it's like, oh, now we're out of... Yeah, now they come for me. Now right. we're dead. <laughs> right. So so it just, like, I think for, for nukes, you, you, the best thing would be that they didn't exist, right, the armament. Um, but if you can't get to that, then the next best thing is probably what we've done, which is sort of cognitive dissonance that allows us to live with it anyway, right? right. And I think on COVID... You know, requires less cognitive dissonance because, you know, if you're vaccinated and boosted, it probably won't kill you. Um, but the same thing, right? We're adapting to it and developing systems for it. Tolerate it, yeah. And, and I think that may be our inclination for climate change, too, especially in this country where we're not going to bear the brunt of it probably as quickly as, as other countries are, um, even though we're the cause of much of it. Um, so that may be the instinct or even the human nature. And I think it's really important that we don't do that. Um, because that's ultimately how, A, it destroys lots of people's lives who don't live here, but, B, how it ultimately destroys us. Um, I have, a, like, a related question, but I, I felt this way, I guess, just on Saturday. I was a whole bunch of different places, including going to the Nets game, and I just had to show my ID and vaccination yeah. card, like, eight times or whatever. And I was like, I realized how much I disliked it, you know, that experience of— Yeah, but let me let me give you the alternative. No, no, I'm not against right. it. I'm not I'm not saying I won't do it or I refuse to or fuck those people or anything like that. But just like from that. a pure convenience standpoint, right. way the—yeah, it's annoying that I have to pull the thing out of my wallet and I have Lyles and I have to pull out Lyles instead of mine and, you know, all that stuff. It's annoying. But 
once I'm inside said movie theater, restaurant, right. arena, whatever it is. You're grateful that they do the process. Yeah. Right. I think my peace of mind over the next several hours Look, is, I, is more valuable than the inconvenience I, of I agree of with that. I, I guess what I'm saying is it's not just the inconvenience, although that's that's part of it. But it's also just that feeling of like, oh, something I'm just used to doing, that freedom of movement that you take for granted as an American and other, like suddenly there's a barrier that you need to get past. And even though I am vaccinated and I do have my ID and I've never been denied entry anywhere, yeah. just the process, you see what a what a complicated emotional like experience it is. It doesn't sound like it is for you. Well, but or or put it this way, you can see how. And I spent you know a week in Texas over Christmas, so not that long ago, where they don't check ever anything, right? Um, if you truly believe that the vaccines are bad, that they're dangerous in some way, and you are already sort of very prone to feeling like the world is conspiring against you, then being denied entry to things. Uh, look, there have been stories in New York of like tourists getting into fights at restaurants yeah. with hostesses or whatever because they don't have or don't want to show that they're their stuff and they're not allowed in and they get really upset. So, look, if you already feel persecuted, I could imagine how this sort of makes it worse. So I have a, a little dilemma that's kind of related to both these things we've been talking about, the Anne Frank situation and also the COVID. So on my way to um, the Nets game, took the subway on Saturday night. I was with my daughter, who's 15 years old. Um, and there was on the subway car a fairly belligerent homeless guy. Yep. I shouldn't say homeless. I don't. I don't like actually like that term. He was a, a, a guy in distress, and he was uh, dressed. You know, he, he he was in distress. He, he had that kind of angry. He's a big guy, and I said, okay, Orly, let, let's just in the next stop. We're going to go yeah. get off and get on the next next car. But I, I I thought about that a lot because I think if I'd been with my daughter, which you know, if I hadn't been with her. I would have cars. No, probably not. Well, right? be, in in part because I I think too like I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but I'm a bigger person and yeah. not so old that I wouldn't be able to. If if something happened on the subway car, where you're not the first person he's probably going after. Well, not only am I not the first person going after, but if he did go after somebody, yeah. it would be the responsibility of other people in the car to, to prevent be. someone from being hurt. You know, right. and being one of the bigger people. That would have to be me, you know. Like he was a big guy. So maybe your incentive is to switch cars, so you don't have to deal with. Well, that. well that's one way of looking at. It. But the other thing is, that, no, I feel like the the as a citizen, you know, the obligation is not to just avoid. You know, I think about this a lot when you see like a guy coming down the street who's again in distress, and you're like, you just want to get out of his way. Yeah. But he's gonna hit it, you know, collide with somebody, yeah. and and that like not everybody's going to end up getting out of the way. Anyway, it's just an interesting dilemma that's becoming a little and, more And, and also, intense. by the way, you know, a woman, was it last night or, or Saturday night, w was pushed on the, pushed train, on the yeah. tracks and, and killed, and that was very deliberate. There was a stabbing on Saturday night on the Lower East Side at the Christie Street Station. And it's funny, Lyle went to a birthday party at an escape room on Saturday, you know, right by Grand Central, and we took the subway there, and I said to him, you're going to take the subway back by yourself. You know, you're, you're almost 13, and it's like three stops on the sixth train. Like, it's really simple, you know, the middle of the day on a weekend. Um, Is that the first time he'd been on the subway by himself? He didn't. He didn't want to do it. So right. I took him there, and I ended up picking him up because he was really uncomfortable with it. And right. I kind of realized that, you know, first of all, he's 12, but also, right. uh, you know, given that I read the post with him every single day, he's constantly, <laughs> you know, showered with these horror stories of everything going on. So he's like, no fucking way. I'm not See, going that's here. your problem. You got the, the, he's, he's brought up with the post. But you have the commentary, so you're correcting for their crazy um, sort of 
phobic like hate mongering, right? Yeah, although you know it's funny. Yes, but I'm all yes for sure. And we don't really read the editorial. We don't read the editorial page, but I'm also a parent, right? Right. So to me, it's like also a good time to say. When you're there by yourself or with your friends, do not wear headphones. Yeah. Do not stand right by the by the tracks. You know, stand five six feet back. Like so, it it, it does create kind of a, a parenting opportunity. No, I agree, and I think I think that's a you know thing I always tell my children. I have two 15 year old daughters. Is you know look up like see the situation you're entering. Like be looking down the street a little bit. Don't let things surprise you. Um, that are in front of you, and it's good. I think it's just good to go through life like that. It doesn't require like like a whole different um, uh, mentality. It's just like, hey, pay attention to your surroundings, and and don't blunder into but, things. But what's interesting is this is the first time in their lives in New York where that's been necessary. Yeah, although I think it's always been. A, a, a friend of mine w- wrote a book with. Um, God, what's his name? What was the guy who used to wear like suits? It was a policeman. Jack Maple. Jack Maple. So Jack Maple, he he written a book with Jack Maple, and he they, they were good friends. And um, Jack Maple, for the listeners, is like one of the architects of the broken windows theory. It was more the Comstat. The Comstat, though. but yeah. but but you know, but but James Q. Wilson wrote the broken windows theory. I guess like the eighties, the late eighties, professor 80s, at UCLA, yeah. right? right? And then Maple, I think, and and uh, also Bratton, I think, under kind of adopted it, understood it. And applied a kind of a statistical rigor to it. Okay, that's a good way of putting um, it. Yeah. And Maple's credited was one of. The, if you were to say why did crime fall significantly in New York City in the 1990s, and you made a list of people who might be responsible for that, Maple would be very high on that list. Now, obviously, the broken windows theory is now seen uh, by the left as a as a terrible thing. I, I don't agree with them necessarily, but um, and by the way, here we are in New York City right now with our new DA Alvin Bragg, who I happen to like personally basically saying I don't believe in the broken windows theory I'm not going to enforce any sort of low level crime well one of one of the one of the aspects of what Jack Maple did though in Comstat which was just realizing that there are places that crime happened to and to do studies would say hey this street corner or this yeah. area there's there's more of this kind of crime or that kind of crime whatever it is but one of the things when my friend said when he would walk with him so they'd be walking down the street and Jack would just start crossing the street and he'd be like why are you going to that side he goes because the lighting is better on that side of the street like so he instinctively lived his life just like doing stuff like oh, that yeah. not as a not as and he's a cop i mean like the chance of him being jumped i mean is like you know pretty pretty low but like that kind of just basic like do the smarter thing um, if you have the option is just a good way to live and i think that's that's something we're learning you know our, our my children have take the subway. They took the subway back this morning from, from Brooklyn where they spent the night. You know, they do it pretty much all the time now. But it's, you know, and, and they, they don't get hassled and think bad things have not happened to them. But obviously in the news, these things are happening. So wait, I want to ask you one other, uh, this is a very small related thing, but I noticed yeah. it happened over the weekend when the, when the woman was pushed on the tracks and killed in, in Times Square. Uh, the governor was involved. I don't know if she actually came to the scene. I don't think she did, although she did come to the scene of the fire in the Bronx when that yeah. happened. So this is an unusual thing happening where the, the governor of New York State is now involved in like literally like the the yeah i don't know that that's her personality so much as it is you know this is an election year she her challengers are basically at least of the three who have announced two of them are new york city based one is nassau county so and she's not that well known right because she was a little known she was lieutenant governor nobody's lieutenant governor is and so i think it, it becomes a way for her to a get a lot of press show she's on top of stuff, even though rea- in reality she has very little jurisdiction over most of these things. Now, the subway more so because the MTA is a state agency. Right. Um, and three, um, 
it's a way for her to prevent her opponents to, like, to say, oh, this person doesn't know or care anything about New York City. Right. It's just, it's just interesting because I feel like as a citizen of the city, I don't know that I need another layer of executive authority like well, on these situ- – I mean, I, I'm glad that the mayor's out there. Adams is going everything. Yeah, and, and, he's, and he's properly like, look, people, people need to be safe on the subways and they need to not be pushed on the yeah. tracks. And the, that, but, but at least on the – so the fire one, I don't know. But like on the MTA one – that's good because I think the reality is for for Andrew Cuomo's entire until he got thrown out of office, you know he used the MTA as a piggy bank, right? As a political slush fund, didn't really care about how well it functioned, didn't really even ever want to admit that it was a state agency, and then took money from it when he needed pork money for for other projects. So um, to see a governor actually accept the responsibility, like I would prefer that they just turned over the system to the city in the, uh, to begin with, but assuming that that's not feasible. Um, I'm at least glad to see the governor engaged. Um, okay, so some of our other things that came up that we were going to talk about. You sent me, I don't even know if you can pass on this one, although you sent to me earlier. This was a story from the Wall Street Journal about um, uh, Microsoft losing all its sort of uh, metaverse talent to, uh, to Facebook. Yeah, I think it's more, and I'm working on something now that we'll do a podcast on in a few weeks or so okay. uh, around this. But, you know. I, Just around what? Around the around metaverse. Around the metaverse, okay. yeah. And I, but, I, but I think that. It is the point I want to make is it is much more real and imminent than people realize. I think because it, it, it still seems like a very foreign concept to people, and I think they confuse the multiverse, which may or may not be real, probably not, with the metaverse. But the metaverse is just effectively, in my view, the regular internet, the internet of things, AR, VR, and crypto all kind of combined into one one system, one ecosystem, right? And and there'll be multiple metaverses that, you know, Microsoft and Apple and Facebook will have their own and so will other people as well. You think that's how it'll break down? Companies will have their own? Yeah. Really? I think the really big ones will. I think the really, really big ones will host their own ecosystems and then everyone else will be on those ecosystems. Just like Apple and Google Play are the two app stores, and everyone then has to. So I'll just be like, "Oh, are you a Microsoft Metaverse guy?" Or a to a certain extent, where people will exist on multi, you know, people will go from Metaverse to Metaverse, and you know, questions of portability of their data, interoperability, safety. Those are all things that I think we're we're trying to think through right now a little bit. Um, but just as we're starting to think through what would regulating the Metaverse look like, um, the point to me of that article was like. These companies who are really smart and really wealthy are working really hard on this thing, um, and I think it's coming sooner than people realize. Do you think there'll be like more of an indie type metaverse that's not controlled by a big company? That's more kind of like well, we'll see if it could work, right? So crowdsource kind of metaverse. Well, so look, we're launching Exalt uh, in the next few weeks. Listeners know that that's the tele-religion social media platform that I've been incubating and working on. It's sort of the anti-Facebook, right? It's totally decentralized. Right. You know, whoever creates a community is in charge of it. They decide who's in it. Right. They moderate content. They decide if there are ads or not. They share right. the revenue if there are ads. Um, it's really kind of the opposite model of Facebook. We'll see. You know, I, I hope does, people like it and, and we succeed, but I don't know. If you can say, where does where does the, the exalt concept intersect with the metaverse? Like, what's the... Well, I mean, ultimately, I, th- I think it's, it's very complementary. Or maybe, you know, maybe it's sort of like... If we're religion 2.0, the metaverse will be religion 3.0, right? So Exalt is how do we start bringing digital functions, uh, uh, physical functions of religion online? And and by the way, a lot of more wealthy religious institutions figured this out during COVID anyway. But like 
How do you live stream services? Could you turn them into podcasts? Could you do Bible study online? Could you organize events? Could you raise money? All that stuff. The answer is yes to all of it. Right. Um, Exalt starts to centralize all of it. Mm-hmm. But, but ultimately, um, what's really interesting to me, and then you can do this with Exalt, but the metaverse would make it easier, is you can have religious communities with no physicality whatsoever, right? right? People could be all over the world. There doesn't have to be an actual church or mosque or whatever it is. And in the same way that crypto, if you think about it, is an amalgamation of like-minded people who say, I really don't trust the institutions. I don't trust the federal government. I don't trust the Federal Reserve or of whatever country they're in. Right. And I would rather throw in my lot with these sort of like-minded people who right. I don't even know. Um, you know, I think communities get created now that, that transcend sovereign borders and the metaverse has the ability to do that. And religion, to me, is a really good use case for it. Um, let's close with a border issue, I guess, although COVID-related. The Djokovic. Uh, oh, sure. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a tennis fan really at all. Um, uh, and I find it insanely dull to watch. But um, the— uh, Yeah, let me just— qu- So for a long time, I thought—because I like, I like sports, right. and I like events, and I like doing stuff. Right? right. You and I go to lots of stuff together. Yeah. So I, I always thought, therefore, I like the U.S. Open. Right. And then eventually, maybe Harper and I figured out maybe like 15 years ago. That you didn't like it. No. Yeah, we're like, we really don't like this. I stopped going. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 get, I still get suckered in. I mean, I like just, it's just, you know, it's like one of those I, things. A friend invites you and you're like, cool, I, I want to go hang I, you out. Know, it was you know? cool. I went to the Olympics in London in 2012 and I went to the tennis at Wimbledon. Uh-huh. And it was tennis like this, at Wimbledon. That Wimbledon. It was cool. And it was about. a semifinal. I saw like yeah. Serena Williams and Federer. It, it was cool. But I think in the Djokovic case, you see this kind of scary thing happening, right, where you know, he's, he returns, I guess he no longer lives in Serbia, but he's like, uh, from, he's Serbian, yeah. and he returns and he's hailed as a national hero. Like, they make this big deal about what a, what a, what an icon of, you know, independent living or whatever. Um, and you're just like, oh my God, that's so, like, in a weird way, they make him into, it, they, they take this relatively small thing he does, right? Which is just like, he's trying to snake through the rules, right? He's just trying to like, not, like, you think of all yeah, the other but, players but, but, who, but, like... But in fairness to him, so... Wait, you're well, going to be fair to Djokovic? A little bit, or just okay. to the Serbs, <laughs> okay. I would say. So, in fairness to the totally Serbs. fine with what the Australian Open did. I th- just like we are talking before, that I think it's... it's Why don't you just say what they did? So, so the Australian Open did... Uh, or the, or the, or the, the, the country of yeah. Australia, the Australian government... Ultimately, Djokovic is not vaccinated. There was a long kind of back and forth over whether or not he could receive a medical exemption. He went to Australia. They stopped him. They detained him. Then they let him in. And then ultimately, they sent him out. And I think I read this morning that he's now, you know, on his way to Dubai or something. Um, so the question was whether or not he could play not being vaccinated. Of course, that then set off a touchstone around all of the different political issues on, right. on vaccination. And then also because, you know, Djokovic is like a Serbian guy, I think, therefore, an easy target for the left um, in general, especially the you know media in, in the U.S. Um, I would say this: I have no problem whatsoever. The Australian government said these are our rules. If you don't comply right. with them, you can't be here. Um, but I also kind of understand where the Serb why they why they deify him because one. He's the greatest Serbian ever, right? He, he has won. I'm not a tennis fan, but I know the that he's won. Serbian ever. I have to think about that. He has won the most championships. He's tied with Nadal and Federer for the most championships ever, and he's much better than they are at this point. So, like, are think, you the greatest Serbian tennis player? Well, I probably, but just as a result, the greatest. Serbian. So I worked for, as you know, Rob Blagojevic, who is Serbian, uh, and so I had some a little bit of experience and exposure to the Serbian community. Um, it's it's a tough group of people, but I will say, uh, Djokovic 
which, you know, for example, I, I think he had a tournament during COVID that got a lot of criticism. Wait, wait, Nikola Tesla is Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, is he uh, a greater Serb than Nikola no, Tesla? No, no, Tesla. Although, <laughs> uh, I read this novel. I'm just I Googling mentioned, that, by the way. I didn't know Nikola Tesla. On the, the podcast, which is, I think it was called um, The End of Night, Last Days of Night by Graham Moore. And it was a novel about Tesla, Edison, and uh, Westinghouse. And, uh, yeah, you were, you were telling me this book was great. Yeah, I really liked it. And um, Tesla seems like was not in any way Copus Mentis, right? Like, was so mentally ill that while he was clearly the genius of all geniuses, you wouldn't want his life, right? Whereas Djokovic leaves probably a more normal celebrity type existence. But, but Serbia.com, I'm yeah. sorry to keep yeah, yeah. Hard, Serbia.com has Tesla as number one and Djokovic as number two in greatest Serbs. I don't know if it's greatest Serbs. I haven't been on Serbia.com in a couple of days. So I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, no, sure. I know you're a little behind. Ten most famous Serbs in the world. Who else is on there? Um, it goes Tesla, yeah. Djokovic, yeah. Um, whose name spelled seemingly wrong, Marina Ab- Abra- Abramovic. Uh, performance it, artist? Yeah, she she didn't she's the one who was naked at MoMA, right? Yeah, Remember? Correct. Yeah. She's a bit yeah, you know, she's known. Yeah. Oh wow, Carl Malden. Who's that? Actor. He's uh in uh uh it's a, it's a wonderful life. You know you'd recognize Carl Malden. He's in I mean he's dead. Two and a half men. What's that? King of Queens. Yeah. <laughs> How so I met Carl your Malden is number four. Okay, now when we get to number five, that's someone I've never heard You're of. Out. Oh Vladi Divas is number six. So I have to say, do you think he was higher ranked before he proved to be one of the worst general managers in the history of the NBA? I don't NBA? think fans give a shit about general managers. He's terrible. No, I agree. It's 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 yeah, remarkable bad. how bad he yeah, is. Yeah, and it's funny because he seemed like such a wise, he a smart dude. Player, he probably you know? is a smart guy. Yeah, but just not not fucking good know. at picking players. Um, anyway, uh, I cut you off. Did, did you know anyone else seven through ten on that list? Yeah, I. I uh, I'm, God, I'm going to be terrible at pronouncing her name. Uh, the the model Mila Jovakovic. Oh, yeah, yeah. So is Rob Bogovic is not on the list? I'm terrible. Serbians are just going to have to like um, is, blacklist it, me anyway for not being able to pronounce it. Is Rod on names. there or no? Who? Bogovic. No, Bogovic is not on here. Um, but why, why would they put him on the greatest serves? He's in prison, I want, or he was in prison. Well, yeah, but I wonder <laughs> if, if I, had, I didn't see that. When he was in office, I wonder if he was on it. Because he really was, like at that point, when I worked for him, like the most famous Serb. Yeah, I think he would have been on there. I mean, if they have, like, Carl Malden on there. I mean, Carl Malden was a great actor, but, like... Two and a Half Men wasn't that great of a show. No, I'm kidding. I know. <laughs> um, Wait, I have to but, look but up Carl me, Malden's let, movies. Let me you, make you a larger political point that I think will probably upset people uh, about, about Djokovic, which is um, I believe that people... That Streetcar is, Named Desire. I'm sorry. I'm cutting you off again. Yeah, yeah. Street, on the Waterfront, One-Eyed Jacks, The Hanging Tree, How the West Was Won. All right, some good Patton. He's in Patton. Some good movies, yes. <laughs> I've still never heard of him, but but some good movies. Carl Malden? Carl Malden. And you you re- heard, you've totally right. And you had heard of him. I have heard of Carl Malden, yes. Got it. I have not. Um, so let's take a half a step back and try to be generous to Djokovic and his point of view here, just for devil's sake or whatever it is. Go right? ahead. No issue whatsoever with any government imposing vaccine mandates, booster mandates, whatever else. I think that's all absolutely the right thing to do. At the same time... We now live in a society where we either deify people or we demonize people. And if you agree with us, we deify you. And if you disagree with us, we demonize you. And I think that that is the wrong way to look at the world, including around vaccines. So let's say that Djokovic, who is someone who was like, I think like the number three tennis player in the world. I know more about him than I probably should for a non-tennis fan. He was the number three tennis player in the world and kind of couldn't quite scale to the very, very top. And 
redid his entire kind of physicality, his nutrition, his diet, everything, and it made all the difference, and he's now on the way to being the greatest tennis player in history. And so if you're him and you spend all of your time thinking about your body, your health, what you ingest, you're tracking every calorie, you're tracking every substance, everything else, and you legitimately reach the conclusion that for you the vaccine is worse than it is better, that's a valid point of view. It doesn't mean that you then don't have to live with the rules, which means he might have to be able to play just like Kyrie Irving can't play home games in, in Brooklyn. Um, but, but just because he has a different point of view doesn't make him evil, right? Right. And, and even – and this, this is now an, exa- an analogy that's going to get me in trouble, but like abortion. Uh, Supreme Court may overrule Roe v. Wade or the very least I think there's a good chance they will send it back to the states and let each state decide. I think that is a cataclysmically terrible thing wholeheartedly support Roe v. Wade. But I've always also thought that if you truly believe that abortion is murder, of course you're against it. Of course that's your position. And you would have a right to do that. And just because someone disagrees with me doesn't mean that their position isn't valid or they don't have a right to say it or that they're terrible people just because they have a specific point of view. And so I I, I just, as a society, part of the reason why I think we're sort of falling apart into such inability to have any kind of discourse is is because everything is all or nothing. Um, And Djokovic, while, look, he's not really a victim of anything per se, I think the way he's been treated in the press over the last couple of weeks has been uh, unfairly harsh simply because he's a victim of the way that we now do media. Yeah. No, look, I think that's really well said. And I think um, uh, it's it's actually a a point worth making – across a whole bunch of different things because it, it is it is right now in the in in this country like people on the other side of 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 the political debates just like have nothing but you know fear and loathing of the other and where is that yeah. getting us virulence yep yeah. uh he's getting taking us down the toilet all right on that optimistic note um god we keep we keep ending on depressing notes every week uh, i don't think that's as depressing i think you were actually like i think i think your point was actually offensive Djokovic. yeah i think that was pretty good Maybe. Um, although the listener feedback, thank you for everyone who, who weighed in from the episode we did last Tuesday, which was a little different and that I think I really talked about some of the different emotional challenges that I face. Um, I appreciate all the feedback from people who, who said that it was helpful for them to hear someone else kind of publicly admit to having some of these different challenges and problems. So thank you for that. And generally speaking, uh, I never remember to do this, but Please rate and review us. Um, please reach out to us if you have th- questions, thoughts, ideas. Hey, I'd love you guys to do a uh, podcast. That is a really important thing. I mean, the rate and reviewing is great, but 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 also um, we definitely do like hearing from listeners. And uh, you know, it can be anything. It, it doesn't need to be some 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 big critique or or anything. It can just be uh, your thoughts, anything that that you you know were inspired. Uh, by in the episode or, or thought was stupid or whatever whatever uh, whatever your thoughts are. Who are we doing on Thursday? Um, we have two episodes that we're um, uh, recording this week, and I don't think we've decided which one's on right. Thursday. One's the CEO of Just Capital, and one is in a British. We have a author, we have a Sebastian Malaby. Is that right? That's correct. I think that one's we're gonna we're recording it this week, but it's gonna be a week or two before that one comes out. Okay. That's what we're sort of figuring out. Cool. All right, we'll be back on Thursday. Thanks. Thanks.